Hello, everybody. We were, we were just talking in our green room about uh, about Halloween. And did, can you just regale us um, again, Christine, with the amazing, amazing food that you made in your cauldron? Side of, well, side I, of I, I just I bought a fire pit that doubles as a barbecue, but has a tripod on the top and you can hang things over the fire pit. So I hung a cauldron over the fire pit and I did a triple chocolate beef chili. And the chocolate was cocoa powder, chocolate stout, and um, and Cadbury's Dairy Milk. Fantastic. I, I have to ask, was it edible? Was it was it really nice? It's wonderful. It was nice. Yeah. To be honest, I'm not sure I could have tasted the chocolate. It was a bit brown. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Brown, you know, and then the meat was brown. And okay. and, and there were beans in it, but they'd all gone brown as well. So I think it, it needs a bit of colour if I ever did it again. Okay, so here's the question. Of all the celebrity chefs you know and you've engaged with, who do you think should adopt that recipe for the for the for their book, for their next book? <laughs> I think I think I would probably ask um oh I don't know. It's gotta be Hugh, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you mean it needs more vegetables, so we'll ask Hugh, Hugh to adopt it and tell me what vegetables to put in to make some colour. Excellent. Um, Emma, lovely to see you. Oh, we turned off your... your fantastic. Yes. Uh, I, I, we did a broadcast yesterday with um, uh, Dan um, from uh, Veg Power, and uh, uh, so it's Monday morning, and he, he, he normally is such a gregarious, outward-going person, as you know, but he was a bit jaded, and we asked him live why, why he was a bit jaded, and he said that they'd had a fantastic Halloween party with his neighbours, and there was a, not only uh, did they have a pumpkin soup, but they had a bit too much red wine, so he's feeling, feeling a bit, bit, uh, bit fragile. Good for him. So let's start this uh, amazing broadcast with Women in Food and Farming. Um, what do you reckon, Christine? This is outing 653, it feels like. I think I think this is our anniversary. Is it? Seriously? It's one in November. Yeah. Griff, I, I, should, I should have got, got your present. What, uh, what, can I, what, what can I get you as a, as a, as a you present? You can send it, send it on afterwards, Max. It's fine. I, I can give you a cheer. There we go. Well done. Well done for, for all of you surviving me uh, for a year. So we're, we're live on Facebook, we're live on LinkedIn, and you'll also be watching this uh, uh, on YouTube and hopefully listening on the podcasters as well. Uh, BSOC Global, Women in Food and Farming, our November broadcast is with Christine, but also uh, we're going to bring her in a little bit later, the, uh, the amazing Jan England of England Marketing. Um, and for those who aren't fully aware, I'm, I'm going to do it this month, if that's OK, Christine. Women in Food and Farming is a group of professional women in food, agriculture and the land based industries at all stages of their careers who get together to discuss business issues, support each other via mentorship and advice and help generate networks of contacts that might be useful to themselves and their businesses. It was founded in 2011 by Christine. The group started back with just five women and now has, what do you think, Christine, is it 500 members? It's over 550, I think now. Is it? And uh, we, BSOC, are very proud to offer our platforms to allow all of you on, on in the Women and Food and Farming groups to continue the conversation and debate. Um, and we've had some amazing speakers. We were just uh, saying in our green room about um, how how well Judith Batchelor, OBE, uh, from Sainsbury's was, um, was received. Um, Christine, she was brilliant, wasn't she? Oh, she, she always is, actually. But yes, she's very good value. And yeah, she's a stellar career, so it's just great for everybody to listen. And, you know, the, the whole when this all set up, the people we're really focused on are the younger people at the earlier stages of their career. And therefore, to have people who are very, very senior, being very successful to come and chat to us so we can, you know, everybody can learn from, from her and just see how normal she is. Um, it, it, I think that's very inspirational. 
Yeah, and where, where it's great with uh, with Judith, what, what I love, what I love, love uh, Christine, about the, these sort of individuals, including yourself, I, I make a suggestion. So I suggested to, to Judith um, uh, that, uh, what well, shall I just interview you? And she said, no, here's my PowerPoint. That's what I'm doing. So, OK, we'll do the PowerPoint. And it's, um, it's interesting. Of all the broadcasts that we've done, we've done oh, 160, 170 broadcasts over the last, last 18 months on a UK and international basis. Her um, PowerPoint was the uh, most requested uh, to be sent on to, to folk and uh, oh, got sent over to, to, to India. To, to Europe and the UK, because she was, if you remember, Christine, she's majoring on uh, food supply chain and the sustainability element, and that sort of uh, obviously segues very well into what's happening in the UK at the moment with COP26. There's just this, there's this, this is explosion of interest, isn't there, in, around yeah. sustainability, or around COP26. Well, I'm, I'm, Christine, what do you think? COP26 is it going to be a success? Is it going to be a success? Every, every step forward is successful, Max, and I think that lots of people have been saving up things to announce at COP26. They're all step forwards. We won't get anywhere near as far as we need to, but it will be a success because it, it's, it's marking some progress. Yeah, and actually there's one disappointment I, I, I had uh, from the broadcast we did with Dan Parker of um, uh, VegPower, is that food, uh, production of food is not apparently on the agenda for COP26. Which, which is obviously a bit of a shame, especially with everything that's going on with the with the national food strategy in the mm. in the UK. I just wonder if, if that's a, a fair, fairly glaring um, oversight. What do you think? Yeah, um, well, it, it obviously is is being talked about to some extent. But I think the trouble with food is that there is no easy answer. You know, just to say we shouldn't eat red meat is totally ignoring the fact that sixty five percent of what we grow in the UK by land area is grass. Yeah. Uh, when you have grass-fed, solar-powered meat, it's, yeah. it's not less damaging. And nothing is straightforward. You know, you can't just say just eat veg because, you know, it should, it should be seasonal veg. It should be grown yeah. here. It's, it's, it is very complicated. There's no easy answer. Yeah, agreed. And then just going off on another segue, on Friday we did a, a broadcast with gorillas. And if, 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 uh, if you're not aware of what gorillas is, no, we're not done it. Chesant Serp Zoo. Um, it, is a, it, it is an internet startup that um, was formed in early 2020, has received nearly a billion US of funding, is now operating out of 86 cities in Europe and uh, in the UK. So if you're in London and um, you've got the Gorillas app, uh, you can order up two and a half thousand retail lines from toilet paper to, to fresh food. And, and the positive catch is it will be delivered to you in 10 minutes. And so, so we had Matthew Nobbs, who's the commercial director on, and just speaking to him, it's like this, there's this revolution going on, uh, Christine, that um, we're so, it's, it's in some areas, we're so used to having deliveries in the respect of the likes of um, Uber Eats and uh, Deliveroo, uh, other platforms are available, but we're now gonna have grocery delivered. It, it, there just seems to be so much change going on, Christine. It's all exciting, it's all progress. Yep, and that's why we need some marketing, isn't it? That's why okay, we need some mar good. marketing e expertise. Well it's almost like we need a, a market research um, agency. Jan, come on in. Whilst, whilst I just uh, um, read out my bits and bobs, uh, especially for those people on the on the podcast. So um, our broadcast uh, this month, we've got our guest speaker, Jan. Jan, say hello to everyone. Hi, everybody. 
So Jan England of England Marketing, uh, they are a leading market research agency specializing in research for the in the food, agriculture and environmental sectors. They're also company partners of the Market Research Society and run the Research Hub, a facility for their clients to research, explore, develop and learn. On site, they undertake product evaluation, taste testing, and immersive research. They're also developing capabilities in biometric testing with Anglia Ruskin University. Jan, was that a good description? I think that came straight from our website. So yeah, I didn't write that, but yes, that's fine. <laughs> Someone more proficient than, than, than I did. So, so Jan, how do you know Christine? Christine, how do you know Jan? Christine? Well, I have to ask you. <laughs> Just we met about 10 or 11 years ago um i think jane king introduced us originally and then i met you in cambridge just after you left the co-op farms you were talking about what your next step was going to be and we sat in one of the cambridge colleges over a coffee chatting about what the future might be and here you are Well, well done. So te- team, everyone, I'm just going to tell you what the, the minor agenda is going to be, that Christine and, and Jan are going to have this conversation around um, uh, marketing and market market research. Um, and I, I'm going to d- uh, duck out. Excuse my phone. That's only Boris wanting to uh, know what's going on in uh, Suffolk. Um, and um, after Jan and uh, Christine are finished, we've got a short video from three of the, the group as to their views as to how they've deployed uh, market research. Um, and then we're going to go to a bit of a, a Q&A. So if you've got questions, uh, pile them into the, uh, into, into the chat line. Um, and then when we're all done, uh, we're going to turn off the live feeds to Facebook and, uh, and LinkedIn. And we're going to go into our breakout rooms. And, and Kirsty, thank Crikey, Kirsty's here, is going to sort out the, the, the breakout rooms. Christine, Jan, is that OK? Do you mind if I, if I drop on top of my cup of tea? But I will be listening. All right. Thank you, Max. Christine, over to you. Right. OK, great. Right. Jan. Hopefully he's going to put you on the big picture and not leave. Oh, that's better. Okay. Um, Jan, I thought what I would ask you just to just explain a little bit about the different types of market research. And, and when you're doing it, how, how do you know how do you have many people to ask? You know, if I go and speak to three people, is that is that market research? No, because the chances are those three people that you speak to are probably your friends and family, and they'll give you a biased answer. Um, what I There's many different techniques used in market research. Um, Online, of course, has become much more uh, common through, especially through COVID. I mean, it's been around for 20 years or so, but in COVID times, people haven't been able to walk up to people in the street and ask them what they think. Um, So online is is much more popular. Really, if you want an opinion of a nationally representative sample, you're looking at trying to get hundreds of responses. If you um, are looking at something very much more specific, maybe just testing a concept in the early days, it might be a new food product, it might be a new idea in agri-tech or something like that. Um, then what you probably need to do is get a handful of people, sort of focus group style. I know the uh, the Labour Party were great into focus groups all those years ago. Get eight or ten people in a room and just see what their initial reaction is. We What we tend to do is mix and match all the techniques that are available to us, depending on the project. So there's no hard and fast rule. You can't just take something off the shelf and say... Oh, this will work perfectly for this project. It's really thinking about what the questions are, what the client needs to know, and then putting together a package that's specifically tailored to 
getting the answers they need. So we're more often than not, we're using a combination of online research to get a national or even international picture. If it's um, if it's testing products and tasting, which we, we do here at the research hub, it will be far fewer people, but we have had a, up to 100 people through the doors tasting sausages and all sorts. So it, it varies enormously in, in what you're trying to achieve. Um, what I would say is the research we do up and down the supply chain um, with stakeholders rather than consumers tends to be more telephone based, um, much more in depth. And it's, we found it's far better to contact people by phone and have a chat rather than rely on them to fill in forms online because we're all bombarded with online surveys at a professional level. So um, talking to people is, is effective. And uh, when it comes to talking to farmers, we always say pick up the phone because they get quite lonely on their tractors and uh, they'll, they'll chat. And they'll say, well, I've only got five minutes, but you know, an hour later, you can still be on the phone to them. I, I have to say, I am always stunned by exactly we, we, at, at AF. We, I was, you know, had we always used to ring up any new member of, of AF, and I was shocked by how many people answered the phone. And I always said, you know, I, I'm ringing about this. Have you got three minutes? And they invariably would say, well, I'm just doing this, but yes, if it, if it is just if it is just three minutes, and I thought, why did you answer the phone? I think farmers are just such decent people that they answer well, them. Farmers are decent people, but they're also, they're also hoping somebody's going to offer them a better price for their wheat than the, the merchant that they've just come off the phone to. So who knows? <laughs> anyway, tell me, so you, you set up this business from scratch, did you? I did. I've been going 26 years. And, and what, what made you, what, made, what gave you the confidence to set up a business and how did you know what to set up a business doing? Where's that come from? Well, where it came from was I'd had sort of, I suppose, 10, 12 years in marketing roles. Um, but by the time I set up the business, I was desperate to run my own business, but I didn't know what I could do. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly good at making things in the sort of traditional farmer's wife type way. So I, um, the only thing I'm really good at doing is talking. And it suddenly occurred to me that I could set up a business undertaking market research and researching market opportunities for people because that's the role I'd had before. But the main motivation for setting up on my own was apart from running my own business and having played at being a market researcher when I was a kid, you know, when they had those little mini tape recorders with a tiny little microphone, I had one of those for Christmas and yeah, you know, I played being market researchers with all my friends and had a whale of a time then. So I think it was somewhere in, in the blood from a very early stage. But uh, the, the primary motivation was the company I was working for was taken over um, by a PLC. Their head office was in Leeds. There was no way I could abandon my farmer husband and guarantee that he would remember to pick the kids up from school. So I decided to, to go it alone. And I literally started with a, you know, a desk, a pen and a pad, had to beg a computer from us some grant funding. And that's how it started off. But I had no great plan apart from, I need to work for myself. So I'm in control of my, my daylight hours and I can get to the kids, so the school gates. 
And, and how many people do you employ now or do you have associates or how, how does it work? We've got quite a lot of associates. We've got seven employees currently. It's been a little bit up and down since uh, well, COVID yeah. hit us a little bit, as it did indeed with everybody else. But we're on seven at the moment with associates in the wings that we pull in and when we need particular expertise. So that's a better model for us, actually. I must admit, it was something I don't think I really understood for years, this concept of associates, but they're, they're basically people, they're almost like people who, who, who are on zero-hour contracts with you, aren't they? They're basically self-employed and they just get called in and do work when you want them, but you've already sort of vetted them and think these are people I'm prepared to give work to. Is that, is that right? For us, it tends to be people I've met on my during the 26 years that I sort of know and trust and quite often they're freelance anyway so if we need to pull associates in that's how we do it but the core team um, is has expanded a bit this year and we're just about to recruit somebody else but we're keeping it tight um, with you know expertise in-house but with the unusual expertise you know things like nutritionists or chefs or um, using Anglia Ruskin to do help us with the biometric side and we've got uh, a lady who works freelance for us who's absolutely brilliant with data so it depends what the task is as to how we pull them in but they have other jobs they're free to come and go as they please it I, I'm not a great believer in zero hours contracts I don't think that's fair so um, I, I, I want to move on to market research in a minute, but has, has running your own business been everything it's cracked up to be? Or has it actually been massively more stressful? Mm, it's had its moments of being stressful, but I would say I've loved every minute of it and I'm not ready to give up anytime soon. Um, it has its stresses, but it has its rewards as well. And... <laughs> I'm not very good at taking time out and, um, you know, in the early days, I only worked in the mornings when the kids were at nursery and at school, but um, I've thrown my heart and soul into it and it's, it's a hobby as well as a business. <laughs> so what, why, why did you decide to focus on, you, you did market research, but why, why food and farming? What was, what was the interest there? Well, I'm married to a farmer. Married into it. <laughs> married into it, yes. Um, in the early days, most of my clients, because we're quite close to Cambridge, were Cambridge-based high-tech companies. And what I found was missing was the sort of human chatty element of it. So I started focusing on um, farm businesses, thinking, I know what they're talking about because the conversation starts over the breakfast table about various aspects about farming. And uh, then... Um, as I developed the business and took on a few more people, there were, I think at one point, I employed three farmers' wives and two farmers' daughters because obviously we're quite rural. And it was a conscious decision to focus on food and farming because we understood it well. We're all consumers and still continue to be consumers. But I think when you, when you know a, a sector and you can talk the talk and walk the walk, you can be far more effective, especially in the role that we have, which is actually collecting data on whatever that topic happens to be and um, helping companies and clients to 
make sense of that data and put it into action. We need to know what we're talking about. So to go and do research on something that I don't know anything about, I, I can't bring the insight or we can't as a team bring the insight to, to the table when we've got the data. So how, how do we, you know, why is, why is market research important and particularly in the farming sector where most businesses you know, the actual farms themselves are quite small. So where, where is the market research important? Where do we need it? Most farming businesses aren't interested in doing any research. Yeah. The, the key um, points for gathering data is whether it's understanding the consumer, the ultimate purchaser of the, the food products, the retailers obviously do quite a lot of research. We're increasingly finding that the manufacturers and suppliers need to also understand what their end customers are doing, buying, wanting to buy. Um, but quite often there's a need to undertake research up and down that supply chain. And we're the only agency that covers the whole food supply chain from um, field to fork, tractor to table, plow to plate, we've used all those phrases. Um, it's quite important for suppliers to know that their customers are satisfied. Um, it's in, we, we've done research for retailers back down the supply chain to see what the suppliers think about trading with retailers. We've worked with food service companies to understand um, whether their um, suppliers are satisfied or not. It's quite important for um, agricultural input companies to understand what farmers are thinking, but also maybe to understand what their role is within industry, you know, especially with things like carbon neutral and the, the big ag, ag chem companies are now, you know, trying to work out where, where they need to be effective if chemicals are going to be removed, what else can they offer, what other um, uh, services can they offer so that they still have a business. So it, there's all sorts of aspects of the whole food supply chain where you need data, you need to understand what's going on at every step of the way. So, so have you done anything, any research recently that where the outcome has surprised you? Where you've learned, you've really learned something, but you weren't expecting it. I think so, yeah. We did a project uh, a couple of months ago um, where we, we were asking uh, consumers uh, it was amongst uh, consumers on our own panel where we were asking them about um, carbon zero and they all, or 71% I think, had heard that the government um, had a commitment to carbon zero, but when we asked them what that meant, they, they didn't know. 62% hadn't got a clue what being carbon zero actually meant, so they'd heard about it, but they didn't know. Um, another piece of research that surprised us um, quite recently was the fact that the retailers are all banging on about their environmental credentials and talking about their commitments. Now, 84% of consumers said they would, they prefer to shop with a retailer that has environmental commitments and is taking it all seriously. But actually, when it came down to it, only 10% could actually name what their favourite retailer were doing. So there's a big gap in knowledge and understanding. There's a willingness of, with consumers to 
embrace this, but nobody's getting the message to them well enough, I don't think. So th those were two pretty key findings and it, it represents a huge opportunity for the industry to collaborate better and get those messages down the line or up the line, whichever way you want to look at it. Wow. Um, and um, I, oh, I think you've, you've answered two of my questions in one go. So what's the key, what are the key areas that food and agriculture businesses are using market research for at the moment then? Well, um, depending on where they are in the supply chain, it's understanding their, um, their consumers' wants and needs. So it's pretty key, especially in the sort of post-COVID era, if we are post-COVID, um, it's, it's key to understand whether the right food is getting out to the right people in the right place at the right time in the right format. So there's a, a lot of consumer research going on, being done by not just the retailers, but the suppliers, the manufacturers, anybody that's involved in the production of food wants to know what their next move should be, what consumers are doing. There have been so many changes, you know, people didn't eat out anywhere near as much. I know that's coming back a little bit. There was a lot more cooking from scratch, a lot more cooking from home, a lot more health conscious eating. I still don't think everybody's eating their, their five a day as they should be, but um, people are taking more notice of what they're buying, what they're eating. Um, so there's, there's that aspect to it, but also within the sector, there's a need to understand, you know, back at the other end of the, the supply chain, thinking about growers now, um, a lot of the farming based companies and organizations want to understand where farmers are on their journey towards regen farming, whether they're going to go organic, whether they're, how they're looking at carbon net zero so all those sorts of topics are quite key because like I said the um, the ag chem companies for example need to know what next um, if chemicals are going to be banned or reduced in order to get towards this regen farming or this carbon zero then they've got to know what what's coming along the line that they can do in order to stay in business and still give farmers uh, an opportunity to work with them. And then thinking about things like membership organizations, we do quite a lot of membership research with a number of the, the sort of agricultural organizations. I'm thinking NFU, I'm thinking BASIS. Um, we've worked with We've worked with Red Tractor, um, as you know, um, RSPCA Assured. All of these organisations need to understand what their members are thinking, what their members' intentions are, what they're looking to do in the future. So that every step of the way, there needs to be more collaboration in the industry. And I know everybody's been talking about that for the last 15, 20 years, but it, it's starting to happen, I think. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it is. But everybody needs a lot more um, evidence on what people are doing every step of the way in the supply chain. It's interesting how you said the evidence, the evidence of what people are doing, but what they say is not necessarily what they mean, and they don't necessarily know what to ask for. And I think my favourite one about, you know, people said if Henry Ford had gone around asking everybody what they wanted, they would all have said a faster horse um, before he obviously invented the car. So, 
Max and uh, Kirsty, we've actually got some short videos now. Um, I've done one of them. I thought if we play those three, and then um, I'll get Max to come back and uh, ask some questions. If everybody's got any questions, just pop them in the chat. So we'll come back again in a, in a minute. Just let you have a glass of water or something, Jan. Then we can. I'll speak in a, in a couple of minutes. Okay, uh, well, great. Well done, well done, ladies. I thought that was uh, that was fascinating, and I will be quiet and let Kirsty play play the video. So Christian has asked me to say a few words about market research and how I use it in my work. So before I worked in agriculture, I worked as a strategist in an advertising agency working on clients like Microsoft and Vodafone and United Airlines. And for that, market research was a huge part of my job because my role was essentially to understand if, for example, a car manufacturer is trying to reach a particular type of person who they think will be interested in buying their car. What are those people's interests? And based on that, what messaging can we use to make advertising that will be interesting and compelling for them and grab their attention? So I used to spend a lot of my time going through market data reports, understanding trends analysis for different sectors. One of my favorites, because I'm a mass massive data nerd, was something called YouGov. They have a huge panel of people that they survey about everything under the sun, both interests and media consumption and also their demographics. And what I liked about that is that you can access a download of all of that data and then slice and dice it however you want. So if you're thinking about how do we reach uh, airline frequent flyers, you could find those type of people and work out who are they, what are their attitudes, what might they be interested in, and based on that, how best can we reach them. When I moved into agriculture, which is probably about five years ago, I was really surprised to find that there wasn't that level of data available. So in my current work, which is for a company called Field Margin, which makes softwares for farmers to help them manage their business, we do a lot of our own market research. So we speak to thousands of farmers around the world in the countries where Field Margin is available to understand what are their challenges, what are the priorities for their farms and ways that they're trying to improve and how are they using the app and based on that we work out both how can we improve our product to make it more useful and what are the things that people like about our product and challenges on farm that we can talk about to effectively market it to farmers who haven't heard of the product before. We also conduct our own surveys and do user experience testing where we get people who have never tried the app before to sit down and we watch them try using it to see basically is it easy to understand and use and if not where are the bits that are challenging. So just thinking about lessons learned from market research um, an example being when I was um, involved with the supermarket um, we like to walk on the floor and ask real customers what their experiences of various vegetables were. And what was amazing was the surprising results you got back, which gave you an insight into what was really driving behaviour. For instance, they didn't like big swedes because they were too difficult to chop. 
They didn't like sweets covered in plastic, being too difficult to access. They weren't bothered about the size and shape of carrots as long as they could, in many ways, use them without peeling them. So no peeled carrots was a big advantage. Um, we also learned some lessons about pack size. Um, and one lesson, a big lesson, was about a new potato variety, which was actually had some sweet potato genetics in it. So we thought it was marvellous because it tasted more sweet and it took less cooking time. But in fact, customers were very confused by it and simply complained it went rotten too quickly. So lots of lessons learned from asking customers. When I was Groceries Code Adjudicator, the market survey was one of the most important tools that I had. Um, it became useful largely because it enabled me to get information from suppliers who on the whole were reluctant to raise issues with retailers for fear of repercussions and were worried about telling me what was going on, even though I had a statutory duty of confidentiality, because they thought that when I was maybe asking questions and probing that the retailer might be able to work out who I had been speaking to. So the survey, which uh, by the end of it, we're getting about two and a half thousand responses, uh, was a fantastic way of, get, of asking suppliers and we were able to ask them by retailer what practices they were experiencing. And the outcome of the survey was a league table that uh, meant that the retailers were all competing against each other for who was seen as the most compliant by their suppliers. They really cared if they did badly in the survey. But I also got so much data that I was able to tell each retailer where the issues were, not only as to whether they were a forecasting or a charging for artwork issue, but also uh, which sectors of their business were, were doing the worst asset. So the market survey was incredibly powerful in helping me get my work done. Well done, everyone. There's videos that we, we all do. Well, can we, if, if they're there, can we have Camilla in, Debbie in, Christine in, Kirsty in, and Beverly? I did ask, ask you if, um, if you'd be able to join us, but so you might have your camera facing the wrong way as, uh, as, as normal. Um, Jan, where are you as well, Jan? Come on in, Jan. Um, Jan, I've got a question that's coming to me uh, via WhatsApp, and it's, it's, if it's, ugh, it's a bit of an emotional. Is that an emotional one? As I mentioned earlier, we did this broadcast yesterday with uh, with Veg Power with Dan Parker, and we also had David Simmons, of uh, CEO of uh, Riverary Produce down in Cornwall, who farms eight thousand acres of um, of veg. And we're at this real tipping point at the moment that um, within the fresh sectors, we're, we're at the zeitgeist that everyone wants to buy fresh produce, um, but our growers are seeing a falling return. Even though we've seen over the last week, ten days, retailers are increasing. Uh, the margins on some food foods um, elements we're not seeing that passed uh, back down into the into the fresh produce um, supply base. Um, as, a, as an example, we've got two very large veg companies um, over the last couple of days have been sold, and it hasn't yet hit the press. So I'll, I'll let 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 that uh, uh, just drift there in the ether for the for the press to um, to pick it up. Jan, can we gain increased margin for growers via market research? What do you think, Jan? Yes, I think we can because one of the what we what we've got to stop is the retailers doing a, a chase to the bottom with the price of fruit and veg. Um, I think that most consumers are quite surprised at how cheap that um, not necessarily exotic fruit, but how cheap ordinary conventional vegetables are. 
Um, we've done some work recently with a veg supplier and we sat in focus groups and we said, well, how much do you think you're paying for this? So long as it's less than a pound, they're okay with it. So why are, why are Aldi and everybody else doing a, a race to the bottom trying to sell a pound of carrots for 29p and that sort of thing? I think there's, there's room because people want to buy this stuff and so long as it's a reasonable price, they'll pay for it. They'll also pay more for non-plastic packaging. Now, everybody's saying they don't want plastic packaging. The retailers and suppliers are coming back to us and saying, but they're all still buying it. That's because nobody's actually been brave enough yet to, to really, well, they're starting to, but it's taken a long time to get rid of all this plastic packaging. It's convenient, yes, it's habit because people are picking up plastic packaging and it's easy to grab when you're in the supermarket doing a dash. But um, people are saying that they would like paper, recyclable, compostable packaging, and they will pay a bit more for it. And I know what they say and what they do are different, but if the retailers are brave enough not to give them those, the options of plastic or not, they'll buy what's there. Yeah, well, well, well said that if you uh, take the likes of Kantar, Kantar have always said, said over the last couple of years that the bog off or the deep discounting that the uh, discounters do on the run up to Christmas uh, doesn't have any effect whatsoever on footfall. So the only people that uh, that, that get penalised on the, on the back of that are, 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 the, are the growers. Um, uh, Beverly, uh, last month, if you remember, uh, Christine and I promoted you to, what, what do we promote you to? CEO of a... Oh, on the, she, on the was, she, was, she was president, I think, by the end. Oh, president. Yeah. How's that new I role? I think I oh, seem to be Beverly. in charge. Yes. Well, what? I haven't got I haven't got a different desk or a different office. I'm still in the same place. Excellent. <laughs> and what if it's okay to ask you with um with your G's hat on and mm. only running a half billion pound business with mm. sites um, in four or five different countries? I lose, I lose count. Market research. I'm, I'm guessing that you deploy a lot of market research in your business. Um. We do, so we've got plenty of market research, certainly in the UK, and it's something that we are kind of spending more time doing across Europe. So yes, it's something that we really value and we know where the benefits are. Um, and, and for instance, Jan's been working with us um, recently. Um, so yeah, that's something that we kind of put a lot of value on. Okay, and, and collectively, everyone, do you think, that this might be a bit of a magic bullet for this sector of ag and, and fresh produce that um, we, we traditionally have sort of uh, Jan and uh, Christine intimated, we haven't been good on this market research element. If we could do that deep dive into our sectors and present it back to our customers to show that if they did do this, they did do that because it's been proven because the likes of Jan has, has uh, done a, a deep dive with a large focus group, it could be, it could be beneficial. Debbie, what do you think? I always find it fascinating that when you start asking real customers how they are using the products that you're passionate about, they're using them and valuing them in a very different way. And for me, it's always illuminating, even just talking to customers who are picking things up in the, in the produce department. Fascinating. Um, and a much ununderstood science, certainly from where I am. But yeah. And, Thank you, thank you, Debbie. And, and Kirsty, with your MDS hat on, have you been involved or with your trainees, have you seen the deployment of market research taking a, take a rise over the last year, 18 months, two years? It's definitely something that we're seeing an increase of, and I think more people are seeing uh, the benefits of utilising it, but on a, a wider scale. So rather than just saying, well, what do I need to learn to benefit my business? Um, 
the sort of doing a bit more of the things that, that Debbie was talking about in terms of trying to understand what the customer actually thinks and how we can then change or educate their their points of view so that they do become passionate about the fruit and veg in the same way that that we do and they do understand the difference between a, a wonky carrot and a straight carrot and the fact that there, there isn't um, a lot of that difference there. Kirsty, thank you. Um, Bev, Beverly, uh, we, I've got two requests in on WhatsApp. They want to know where you got your leather jacket from. <laughs> I can't remember, it's old. <laughs> I, think, I think we're gonna have an auction you know, here. I've, yeah, but I've got to, um, I've got to say, so um, oh, in celebration of COP26, I've put up a big poster so that everybody that comes into this office has to do one thing that's going to help uh, wow. climate change. And my one is not to buy new clothes between now and Christmas. <laughs> between now and Christmas? <laughs> That's what somebody else said. I can't, I mean, I don't need to be able to do it. <laughs> good, good, good. Oh, the third person wants to know where, where your leather jacket's coming from. We've started, started something here. So market research, Christine, back, back to you with your corp hat on, and especially your, your grocery adjudicator um, hat on. It, 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 is this something that you think that we should do more of in the, in the sector that we should be deploying the, the likes of Jan more so to, to give us that that edge? Gosh, um, I think the, the retailers do do an enormous amount, but I think they're trying to do more and more with all of their data, you know, their club card data and that sort of thing. So they learn an enormous amount from the data that they've got rather than having to go out and do the research. But in all my time at, at Mars and at Fonterra, you know, when it was Anchor, um, they are all, they will listen. If you go in as a supplier and say, I've done some market research and I think there's an opportunity for this product. And if there's an opportunity for the retailer, because they all want newness, they like novelty, they like they like some novelty curves where everybody buys lots of something new. They will always listen because they're not doing the in-depth research that the fast moving consumer goods people are. Uh, so, so I, I do, they, 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 will, they will listen whether, I don't know, I, you're trying to get me to say that I can see it working on brands. I can see it working with innovation. Uh, I, I struggle to think what, what more we can add to fresh produce if we just want people to buy more fresh produce or pay more for it. And saying it, it, it's hopeless, but I just think that's probably been done to death. It's newness that retailers love. Well done. Uh, Beverly, you're waving at us. What would you like to say? Yeah, I, I've just thought of an area where we've made a real difference by using market research. And that was when Guy Shropshire went over to the USA to launch Love Beats. And so the, the, the American market was kind of known to like beetroot, but hadn't got the kind of more convenience and tasty products that were that was already prepared. So Guy ran focus groups and was able to present the data to, to many different retailers and actually kind of gotten in that way and could prove that there was a potential here. And then the next stage of the market research was to recruit lots of ambassadors and they had to go into stores and um, sell it, just basically see how much they could sell and, um, and get by engaging with the, with the customers to, uh, to prove within that afternoon what the potential sales could be. And that's the way the American retailers judge whether you get any shelf space. So it was market research from you know, research groups and traditional focus groups all the way through to having store ambassadors. And Beverly, that's fascinating what you say about the, the states. 
and Mr. Mr. Yeah. Shropshire at the National Fruit Show um, that I attended, I, I did lots of video interviewing mm -hmm. there, speaking to a very uh, well-known character in the, um, in the in the fruit sector. Um, he he was saying how they found that the UK business is so difficult to grow, um, and they're seeing far better growth, exceptional growth in the likes of the states and also um, Australia, um, mm -hmm. because they've been able to take the, the skills that they've learned. Uh, of dealing with the UK retailers and take them out mm -hmm. to uh, America and Australia and just wow those retailers with everything that they've done, including the, the, the market research side. Jan, just coming back, back to yourself, if you had a, uh, a an individual or a company come to you that was well-funded and was looking to um, start a, a new business, say either an ag or, or, or fresh, and they wanted to learn from you the, the, the toolbox of things that they needed to get a steer as to where the business should go on a commercial strategic uh, basis through market research, what, what would you... What would you be um, stating to them that they should do as a, as a new business to, 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 to learn from that market research, please? Well, it rather depends on how much budget they want to throw at it. Um, we've done all sorts of proof of concept type projects with big budgets and small. In the good old days of EDA, they, EDA and the um, regional development agencies used to throw money at crazy projects, but... Um, more recently, I think our advice is to be evolutionary in what you do. And if you've got a new product or something that you want to take to market, you should actually take your time in unfolding the story. It's a bit of a Pandora's box in the sense that you do a little bit of research, maybe go back, um, possibly change what you're doing slightly to meet that, then go out to a, maybe a larger sample. So there's lots of different ways of capturing market data. We had an inquiry the other day from a Spanish company, in fact, and they said, oh, we want focus groups. And I said, um, no, you don't. We're just preparing a proposal and we're actually going to go out to our panel. So we get a bigger sample saying, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of these concepts? Those that like it will probably send samples to. And only then when we've got some really good um, data heavy feedback on whether they like it in terms of brand taste and everything else, would we then get together with the focus group and turn around and say, okay, so how should, how should they start pushing it out? And that's gonna be a lot more cost effective for them and they'll get a lot more data. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, research is an ongoing process it shouldn't be do a piece of research stick it in the drawer and wait two years and do it again it should be ongoing evolutionary unfolding and you ask the questions but then you need to get the answers back and question the answers and that that's we've adopted that as our strap line since uh, claire came on board and um that's the key don't ever stop keep asking keep poking and asking a few more questions to get more answers so that you get you, you refine your product or service or whatever it is ever it is you're offering Jack, can you just give us give us the strap line again because someone's uh, dog moved the, the dog ball when you when you said it, it was very important what's your strap line please asking questions questioning answers boom there there we go um and it, 
if you remember, Jan, you and I about six months ago, we had a conversation because I, I um, mentioned a quote from the National uh, Office's statistics that over the COVID pandemic period, there was some incredible number of new food businesses have been created. But I suppose a, num a number of those will, will just be um, kitchen based, but there'll be some um, serious players that, that, that uh, accelerate. We've been contacted on a recruitment basis uh, this week with a, with a business that's looking to set, set down another vertical farm that's going to um, have close to half a million square foot of uh, production in uh, the eastern regions um, growing um, more uh, salad cropping. It's not what Beverly wants to hear, but I, I just wonder whether, whether on a market research um, basis that these companies, whether they be large, small or medium, they need to deploy that market research, Jan, to, to make sure they're pointing in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, I think you you gave me a figure of 654 when we talked six okay. months ago of uh, businesses, food businesses that had set up last year. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, I've, I've had it quoted at me in the past that 90% of new businesses fail, not just in food, in everything else. And it's quite often because they don't do any research. So we're, we're starting to look at um, doing sort of little little tiny research opportunities for some startups the idea being they come here they get exposed to our panel and pay a small fee to us just to test a product and maybe have you know a dozen non-competing companies here where our panel go around and taste everything so it's a bit like a, a a kind of food fair type arrangement but they actually get genuine feedback um, they pay us a small fee to just test the market a little bit. They get the feedback. They maybe get to talk to other, other people who are making new food businesses and share, share experiences. We haven't done it yet because we haven't, haven't had time, to be honest, but that's planned for the new year where we give people a taste of what market research can do for them. And if it gives them a few answers and a few ideas of what they should be doing, they ultimately they'll come back and they can grow their business but the key is don't just ask friends and family ask yeah, some yeah. people who don't really have it an axe to grind about any which way um, ask a few strangers what they think as well as your friends and family because your friends and family are always going to say oh your new crisps or your new yeah. cereal bar is the greatest thing since sliced bread you need some honesty and some feedback well done um, uh, Beverly, Todd in uh, California, he wants to buy your leather jacket for 50 US. Just throw that in there. Um, Kirsty, with M <laughs> you'll take it. I'll, I'll see if he'll cover the packaging. Kirsty, with MDS, do, it, with, the, with the training that happens with your uh, trainees, um, do you have uh, the, this, uh, this element of market research built in as part of the training course? Or do you think that's something that you might look to deploy? I definitely think it's something that we wouldn't say no to looking at in the in the future. Um, we are at the moment mostly focused on some sort of leadership and management, the, the man management skills. But a lot of our trainees do go into um, roles where they're working on a short term market research project or a um, sort of project management type role. So they're gaining that type of experience. Okay. And what's quite useful for businesses is maybe when they don't have the resources to do it internally or to take somebody on full time to do that kind of work for them having somebody coming in with a fresh pair of eyes especially a younger person who's going to ask lots of questions which somebody maybe who's more experienced might say well that's a silly question 
to ask. They're going to go down Jan's route where they're going to ask all sorts of different questions and cover quite a wide um, range of scenarios. Yeah, Kirsty, well done. Um, Kirsty, do you remember the, the, the terminology category management? I remember about 25 years ago going on an IGD course, a huge expensive IGD course, to be le lectured about um, category uh, management and how we had with the likes of um, ASDA implants. And so there was this um, huge amount of transfer of um, in information from the uh, from the supplier to the retailer and, and, and vice versa. Just, just with your your, your grocery, ex-grocery hat on, do you, do you think that's a cycle that we might see again? Because it seems to have fallen by the way. Well, it's, it's not fallen by the way. Still category management, there's still implants. Actually, implants is one of the roles that MDS uh, trainees sometimes do. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had an implant in the co-op for a flower company and that actually helped. That actually was particularly about forecasting, having somebody on the wow. inside that was helping with the forecasting um, back, back, to, back to base. So I don't think it's gone. I think I actually had quite an impact on it when I was some um, um, when I was the adjudicator, because I really objected to people pay, um, paying to be category captain. Um, and uh, there, were, uh, there were figures of two million pounds to be the category captain, and they assured me that they got no benefit out of it. And I said, no business gives another business two million pounds for nothing. And that I didn't like the category captaincy because the tendency is to, uh, well, I mean, to be honest, I did it when I was at Mars, that you, know, you, you would basically be able to do a layout that optimized your sales. Um, but people were telling me, well, I've got a novel product and the big brand leaders got an imitation one. And in their layout, my products are back of beyond and their products right in front of everybody. So category captaincy, I was saying their money could not be paid for that because that was basically paying for shelf positioning, which was prohibited under the code. So that hopefully then got it all back down to, you know, people you know, having to sell ideas to retailers and retailers deciding who they were going to listen to. Okay, and Christy, as we've uh, you, you've been the powerhouse that you are in retail, just looking in your, your crystal ball. So we've had the likes of category management. We've had the likes of, uh, oh, Beverly, help me here, uh, GFS, group food sourcing with that with Tesco's. We had the Pico thing with it with Sainsbury's. What what can you envisage is going to come along next with uh, with retail over the next five ten years, and, and especially around the market research side? What do you think, Christy? Um, I actually think that that the the only way forward is for retailers to be very, very close and very embedded with their suppliers, co-investing with their suppliers, understanding market research would be done for the retailer and the supplier's benefit at the same time, because everything else, you know, all of the double guessing each other and not telling each other the truth and not giving them everybody all of the open costings and things, you never get to the bottom about what's the most efficient way of doing it. And we're just going to have to get more and more and more efficient and it's got to be less and less waste less and less carbon impact. So much needs to be understood. You're not going to be able to do it with these sort of uh, um, battling relationships between the sites. Beverly, agree, disagree? I agree. I, I, I think a lot of market research could be usefully deployed in understanding what consumers are prepared to pay for in terms of the triple bottom line or two bottom lines, people and planet. So ethical trading around people and also um, all the things around the climate impact. Um, because I think there's, there's a limit to which producers can actually absorb these costs. So it's what uh, degree of price inflation are we able to get? So oh, it'd be great. it would be fantastic to have yeah. that healthy moment of that, of that yeah. partnership between the retailer and the, the likes of yourself. Um, yeah. 
uh, Beverly. So you're all working in, in collaboration rather than this that, that we've seen yeah. over, over the years. Come on, Debbie. Do you think? Do you think? Can we be positive? Do you, do you think, especially along with, with the lines, the deployment of uh, of Jan and England marketing? Do you think we can see that collaboration happening with on the retail side? I think the collaboration thing uh, is quite difficult because of uh, competition rules, etc. But um, I think getting I noticed a trend with some of the supermarkets where they are encouraging customers to eat more veg um, and put veg in meals. So hopefully, you know, that starts a trend of valuing veg more because it's not just a sort of something that's in the basket. It's something to be valued and eaten and sort of eat the planet better. So I, yeah. I do see some advantages in it, but it's it's not easy. It's not straightforward. No, well, well, well said. So, so Jan, we're, we're just starting to run out of time here. So what, what is your direct advice to all of us in market research when perhaps our sectors of ag, fresh food, fresh produce haven't been as sophisticated with market research compared to other, other areas of, say, F FMCG? What, what's your direct advice as to how we can better ourselves with the deployment of the, of the likes of England Marketing, please? Uh, keep asking questions. Keep questioning the answers. Um, just don't look at everything in uh, in a holistic way look at if it if it's fruit and veg in particular we're not talking just about fruit and veg we're talking about food generally max i think it's so important food is so important to people obviously and it's so important for the planet that we get it right especially cop in this week of cop 26 um, we, we need to understand what's going on in that supply chain much, much better and understand and gather data every step of the way. Um, that, that would be my, my key advice to the whole of the food industry. It, it needs to be stitched together much better. The supply chain doesn't need to be breaking down all the time. It's got to be collaborative. But what? people have been saying that for years, so... Now's the time. Christine, you're going to wrap up for us, please. I was just going to say that that's been a very interesting talk. Very, you know, big, huge thank you to you, Jan. Uh, I'm hoping that there'll be people who will watch this who have never really thought about market research and, um, and, and starting to see what its potential might have in their businesses. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Max, for hosting it. Um, and uh, see you uh, next month. So there will be one in December. And uh, we're busy getting our speakers all aligned for the following year. We've got Belinda Clark of AgriTech East as our speaker at the next one. Excellent. Uh, just before we wrap up, one, one of this panel, has, uh, we, we're going to enter for a, uh, a, a Guinness Book of Records uh, competition. I think, I think we're going to win. Who's that going to be? Kirsty, tell everyone about your pumpkin, please. Oh, I was explaining at the, the beginning, we, we grew a pumpkin on the allotment and then when we went to, to pick it, it was heavier than my four-year-old. So um, slightly slightly difficult to, to get it back home, but very much appreciated uh, from the village children. <laughs> Just, I don't know about you, you guys, I've got this vision of Kirsty and a four-year-old pushing this, this melon. <laughs> Down the road, stopping the traffic, stopping lorries. I couldn't get it onto the, uh, the kitchen table to, to carve it. So um, I had to do my, uh, please, darling, can you come and help me lift this this thing up? Because And then I scooped it out using the electric mixer because it was too much manpower. 
That's brilliant. Excellent. And uh, Beverly, just to say, Todd in, um, in California, he's raised his stakes for your leather jacket to 100 US. I, I just put you in direct contact and, we, and, and, and I'll let you guys sort, sort it out. We've just got to see this jacket one, one more time. It's obviously creating a lot of internet interest out there. You're, you are the Holly Willoughby of, of G's, aren't you? Uh, oh, oh, I wish. That would be a great status to have. That would be almost better than president. It wouldn't. Have. There you go. You're, you're now now the, the 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 Instagram influencer of Jesus, as well as being president. Um, everyone, if you if you stay there, we're just going to move to the breakout rooms, and the fantastic Kirsty's going to sort that out, and we're just going to stop the live stream to Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope you enjoyed this uh, broadcast, Jan. Thank you very much for that. That was fascinating. And if you look at all the links, you'll see um, how to get in contact with uh, with Jan and uh, her team. And we'll see you next month with that uh, with Belinda Clark of AgriTech E. Thank you very much, everyone. See you, see you in the next one. Bye-bye.